Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. I paid my dues Time after time I've done my sentence But committed no crime And bad mistakes Skips back into midfield now, a string of passes for England And Ella Toom is looking to get on her bike and go Katrina Gorry overhauls her Now a long ball forward, Kerr's been released Here's Sam Kerr, saved by Mary Herbs. The spring on the counter-attack from Australia. Katrina Gorry airing out a pass all the way downfield to Sam Kerr in behind the defence. Flag might have been up on closer inspection, but Kerr, the first time she's been one-on-one with the goalkeeper, offside or not, and Mary Herbs. Custodian for England put her left boot in the way. For Ella Toon, she just seems to be ghosting in and around Gorry. Toon with the shots, and it's nestled into the top right corner. England have the opener. Australia a little lax in defence. It was Alessia Russo who had it on the byline. She cut a ball back, which overran Lauren Hemp, but found its way to the feet of Ella Toon. And on the angle from the left side of the 18-yard box, she hit it across the face of goal, past Mackenzie Arnold, into the top right corner. And in the 36th minute, it's Australia nil, England one. Only a few metres in front of the halfway line. Greenwood at a slow pace begins to start forward and Australia have won it back. And now there's a break here. Sam Kirk can run it nearly bright. Sam Kirk continues on, edge of the box. Kerr strikes! Australia has never, ever, ever been louder. A green and gold eruption in Sydney. Go on, Sammy Kerr. That was sublime. It was the goal Australia has been longing for. How good. Sam Kerr taking on the defence. Streaking all the way to the edge of the box and unleashing ferocity on England's defence. It is Australia 1, England 1 in the semi-final. England now long ball up into their front half and Lauren Hemp's got a little passage in and she's got it for England. Lauren Hemp has scored and England have retaken the lead. It was Hemp against two Australian defenders and somehow she was able to squeeze the shot through Australia's back line, past the goalkeeper and into the bottom right corner. And it's England who have gone back up 2-1. It's a loose ball and gets their first for England. Does well, a bit of pressure coming her way from Catley. Now Hemp turns to run forward. She's in behind the midfield line with the defence in front of her. Lovely cutback pass right into the box. Shots and England have a 3-1 lead. Hemp with a lovely through pass to Alessia Russo. And in the 86th minute, 
England are going to be on their way to a World Cup final. The Lionesses lead 3-1 at Stadium Australia. Thrown in. And that is full-time from Stadium Australia. England, for the first time ever, will play in a Women's World Cup final where they will meet Spain on Sunday in an all-European affair. And it is here that the Matildas' journey comes to an end. Vanquished at the hands of the old sporting rival. But what a journey this has been. Memories that won't be forgotten quickly. Moments that will live on in Australian footballing history. But it is England who are triumphant tonight. They take their place in the final. Defeating Australia here in the semi. Australia one, England three. Yes, a very good afternoon, and well, we are the champions from Queen being played in around about 14 hours from now throughout Great Britain, around the United Kingdom. Arguably the biggest sporting event in women's sport takes place tonight in Sydney, 10 o'clock New Zealand time, 11 o'clock UK time, Monday morning. It's been a remarkable tournament hosted here in New Zealand and Australia, and it now comes down to England v Spain, two great footballing nations. This afternoon on the programme, we talk the Women's World Cup final. We're going to head to the UK now, catch up with football correspondent Andy Buckley. Andy, how much anticipation for this Women's World Cup final? Let's be honest, the last time England were in a World Cup final was 1966. It was indeed, yes, and uh, the country awaits uh, for England's women's team to see if they can lift the World Cup for the first time in history. Uh, great anticipation, perhaps sums it up accurately. Uh, a bit of controversy as well, really, over the, uh, the, the uh, lack of uh, awareness and recognition in certain quarters. I mean, Prince William, who is president of the Football Association, he's been criticised and has indeed apologised for the fact that he's not going to be in Sydney for the final against Spain. Um, people saying, well, if it was the men's team, uh, he might well be there, but he's not there. Uh, I think he's on a holiday with his family, which he's entitled to. But of a, an occasion of such significance, people are saying, well, why isn't he there? Why isn't Rishi Sunak, the prime minister there as well? He's sent his foreign secretary and his culture secretary over for the final. Uh, should the prime minister be there? If it were the men's team, would the prime minister and uh, the future king be there? Arguably, they would be. They would have interrupted their schedule. So uh, there's a little bit of flak flying, really, in those quarters. And I think it's justifiably so as well. I, I think that uh, Prince William should be there. Uh, the Queen of Spain is going to be there, uh, Queen Letizia. And, um, you know, I just think it's an own goal, really, on the, the government part and also on the, the royal family's part that they're not there. But the country at large are hugely excited. A big Premier League weekend, the second weekend of the Premier League season. Uh, and uh, thankfully... No Premier League games coinciding with the final, so the football world, the sporting world, the country at large will pause and hope that England can bring back the trophy. European champions, I'd imagine there was a high expectation on this team heading to this uh, Women's Football World Cup, and they've certainly stepped up, they've certainly uh, delivered. The big question is, can they beat Spain? Do people believe they can beat Spain? Uh, I think it could go either way. I think uh, so originally England were fancied as favourites and then people were saying, well, 
Spain perhaps technically a good team and they could come out on top. Uh, but Spain have got a fairly flaky defence as well. So I think England uh, have overcome some tough obstacles so far to get to this stage. Uh, and they are heavily fancied to, to go and win it uh, with Sarah Wiegmann as, as the uh, manager as well. She's uh, so highly rated that uh, you know she's even been discussed as a potential successor for uh, the men's team if uh, she wanted that kind of gig once Gareth Southgate steps down. I mean, a suggestion as well that Southgate should have, in fact, have made the journey. He was pictured at one of the Premier League games earlier today. Should he be there to support the team? But, uh, yeah, I think it, it could go either way. But I think England are narrow favourites. Uh, you, you, you sort of feel, and it's probably a little bit the same here in New Zealand at times, there seems to be a lot of virtual signalling from key areas when it comes to women's sport, the women's game, etc. But when it's all said and done, as you've already highlighted, how much um, conviction is in a lot of what people, you know, backing what a lot of these people in positions actually do have to say publicly yeah i I mean uh it's a tough one really because the women's game uh, has to compete with the highest profile um sport in the world really uh, the country really that has more awareness and more uh, global global spotlight than any other uh, sport i.e the english premier league um so i suppose is that an advantage or a disadvantage because the women's game can off the back of that can say well come and support women's football and there's been great uh, turnouts at uh, certain matches when they've been played in uh, Manchester City are going to play Manchester United in uh, the Old Trafford uh, later in the season and other fixtures have been played in the main stadiums and then other people say well the women's game gets sort of turfed out into the, the minor stadiums as well and the, the reason is it's, it's kind of bummed on seats really because they can only attract a certain amount of yeah. support and we'll never know until the women's game gets that recognition, gets that profile, whether they can command huge attendances like the men's game. I'm just walking back from uh, the Etihad Stadium after watching Manchester City beat Newcastle 1-0 and there was 55,000 there to watch it. Uh, will Manchester City women's team get 55,000 for a home game? I very much doubt it, mm. but we'll never know really. And yeah, I, I think it's quite right though that, that, uh, that women's game and through the English team and all the teams of all the nationalities, and there have been new nationalities who've taken part in this tournament as well, that the game gets that exposure and... and uh, uh, recognises the fact that, uh, you know, women's football is a massive sport. Players such as Greenwood, Daly, Toon, Russo, are they household names in the UK now? They are, yeah, and they'll command huge uh, uh, sponsorship deals once this tournament is over, if they lift the trophy. Um, I think, uh, like with the men's team, if if they're also runs or, or near misses, then uh, there won't be the same... Uh, lucrative deals waiting for their agents but uh, yeah they have become household names and I think uh, Jill Scott who was part of the European Championship winning team she sort of she triumphed in the I'm a celebrity uh, get me out of here the jungle experience that's the big program on ITV in uh, the winter months she won that and she's now a, a, a household name and others as well have become uh, recognised interesting really because on the way to uh, the match to watch City against Newcastle, I was listening to the radio and Athletics was on, the, the you know, the World Championships. And you're thinking, well, and Athletics is struggling for profile. And when I was a kid, watching Athletics and listening to Athletics on the radio was uh, was, was compulsive viewing and listening because it, it was such a big sport. So I suppose it's the cycle, really, and the fact that sports are competing for this attention, whether it's cycling or, or whatever it is, 
and you know, athletics missing out, but football sees in the moment, and football very much in the spotlight. And uh, but but having said that, um, sports like netball, of course, England Australia have done well in the netball. Uh, so there's so much. Um, fighting for recognition and, and to earn that column inches in the newspapers and on the airways, that it's very difficult for these sports. What's been done around London, what's been done around England in regards to fan zones, big screens being set up? Are there going to be key areas where a party centre where the public can go in mass and watch this final? Uh, I don't think it's on that scale, to be honest with you. saw my next-door neighbour putting the bunting out uh, uh, earlier today, two young kids. Uh, Downing Street's been criticised because all the bunting was out for England when they played in the World Cup in Qatar in 2022. And yet, uh, there's hardly any kind of uh, evidence of, of national colours in Downing Street leading up to this game. It just hasn't got the same uh, attention of the public. I think the advertisers are jumping on it and uh, obviously quite rightly the sport is. But I just hasn't, don't think it's got really the same kind of... Uh, uh, Profile really it just hasn't got that stature because let's face it, it's a busy weekend of Premier League football and all the other sports that are going on, uh, and people ain't going to uh, turn away from doing that. They will, they will stop for two hours to watch the game, and they will support England. And there might well be a public holiday if England win. That's another thing that's being debated at the moment: should England have a public holiday if they uh, uh, win? the World Cup and uh, I think there is a, a school of thought that say yes they should but it does open up a whole debate which is why we're having this conversation now really as to where does it sit within the tier of this very crowded sporting calendar and fixture list that we all enjoy and watch and listen to uh, uh, but uh, the attention for the, the ear and the eyes of the sporting public is so keenly fought really and uh, it'll be interesting to see because uh, let's face it in the same stadium 20 years ago England won the Rugby Union World Cup and beat Australia and people thought that was going to be a seminal moment for Rugby Union and it wasn't really it, they didn't kick on from that and it, the Rugby Union is still quite an elite sport really in England so it'll be interesting to see whether women's football the same applies if they're successful against Spain. The 3-1 victory over Australia, I imagine, was um, well-received because I would have thought, even though they're two completely different sports, there would have been a little bit of a hangover from the controversy surrounding the Ashes series. And let's be honest, I think off the back of that, there's not a lot of love for the Australians. No, there isn't, uh, certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, I think English... Fans are still a bit bitter about the way that the Ashes turned out. They felt as though they had the upper hand against the Australians. I think it was self-inflicted, to be honest with you, in certain respects with key decisions. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's always nice to to beat the Australians uh, in whatever sport, and there is that rivalry. Uh, I, I think there is also uh, an acceptance and a recognition that uh, Australia and New Zealand have put on a great show, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, that the fans over in, here in England have really warmed to it and have really embraced it. So I think it's put New Zealand and Australia in the shop window. Not that they needed it, because the two countries that really that, that us Brits love and can't wait to get over there, not just because of the sport, but the climate and, and the people and the friendliness and the, the, those common bonds that have existed for uh, so long between uh, the nations. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, Andy, look, just getting back to it, I'm uh, just talking about where this sits. I'll, I'll be honest, I, I watched the first game which involved New Zealand and Norway and I was really disappointed by the standard of football. I just expected more. Um, and as the tournament's progressed, I've seen a better standard of football. I've seen some really good players come out of Colombia. I've seen some good footballers. I thought France were really unlucky against Australia. But when you do compare it to the men's game, there is still a long way to go for the women's game. And you've talked about it. We've only got so much time. And when you've only got limited time, when it comes to sport, you're going to watch the best product. But what I will say is the women's game has progressed, but I think it's fair to say it's still got some work to do in terms of um, providing a product where mainstream footballer doesn't sit down and go, "Mm, it's pretty average. Yeah, I mean, it's harsh what you've said, but uh, some might say, well, it's fair. And I do tend to subscribe to that theory that you've just put forward. I think the goalkeepers tend to struggle uh, to a certain extent in women's football, uh, the size of the goals. Uh, it's just a fact. I mean, it, you know, that's why a lot of sports, men v women, uh, can they compete on an equal uh, playing field? And I'm not sure the answer is yes to that. <clears throat> Athletics is another sport where that uh, discussion has obviously been top of the agenda but uh, yeah I was a bit disappointed early on I thought there was a, quite a few games where I was waiting for something to happen there was a lack of goals so it didn't really sparkle it's come to life and as the knockout stages invariably take place that's when uh, the interest uh, starts to rise as, with the more success that you enjoy but yeah and I think really the, the purist the, the, the sporting fan when they analyse it they'll think well is the standard as good as it should be to deserve the uh, kind of media attention that it's getting and that I'm not answering that in terms of and I, I doubt it at some stages because I just think how, how good is it I mean uh, Lucy Bronze who played for Manchester City uh, an experienced uh, defender for England uh, somebody said to me that she reckoned that at one stage we're going back a dozen years ago when Pablo Zabaleta played for Manchester City that she reckoned this is just something I heard on the grapevine that she thought she was the best right back at Manchester City I thought hang on a minute you're telling me that uh, Lucy Bronze is better than Pablo Zabaleta uh, and the oh, a couple of other players that City had on the books at the time and I can't see it to be honest with you and that, I'm not, I don't think we should compare men's versus women's I think that's the, the difficulty but invariably when so many people watch men's mm. football across the world especially in England it's going to happen and if they want to be on that uh, same kind of consideration factor then you know you, you, you live by the sword and you die by the sword don't you? Well, that's it too. And look, I say, I think it's just where the evolution is. I think it's just organically growing. And saying that, you know, I saw some players, like I said, with Columbia, who I thought were brilliant, did some things on the park that we all try in our backyard. I thought there was some outstanding talent coming through in Nigeria. Um, and I thought the French players, I think there's some England players there, daily particularly, who looks very, very comfortable. And I think it's only a matter of time before the standard reaches the level of those players. And so, look, I think going forward, all the signs are great. But as you said at the moment, let's not get too carried away. It's not the English Premier League. The standard's not as good as the men's. But, but this tournament's presented itself beautifully. It is what it is. It's economies of scale. And once you accept that, it's been thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it for what it is. Yeah, but, absolutely. But don't get swept along with the with the uh, hysteria and the hype, uh, and believe something that it isn't, because uh, people are quite uh, brutal, really, in their assessments. Uh, uh, radio journalists, me and you included, uh, among them, and you can't kid the 
people. You can't kid the spectators and say, oh, isn't this great? And it is, you know, it's on a par with the men's game. <clears throat> I mean, there's talk about whether the wages should be comparable to the men's game. Uh, you know, the England manager of the women's team gets a tenth of the salary of the men's team, Gareth Southgate. Uh, is that right? I don't know. Uh, certainly based on attendances and interest in the game, it probably is about an accurate reflection. Uh, so I'm not doing down the women's game. I'm just trying to, as you say, put it into into context, really, and, and try and analyse it and think, well, it, you know, where does it sit within the kind of uh, the, the tier, the structure, the pyramid of sport that we all love and watch? Andy Buckley is my guest on the programme. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll keep Andy. We'll talk a little bit of English Premier League football. Welcome back into the programme. We are talking football. Andy Buckley is my guest on the programme. We've been talking the FIFA Women's World Cup, England taking on Spain. Live coverage here on SENZ from 10 o'clock tonight. That, of course, is 11 o'clock Sunday morning in the UK. But, Andy, uh, I know that you attended Manchester City's home game against Newcastle. Good result for your mob getting up over Newcastle. One nil and the machine the train keeps on a rolling yeah it did I must admit I thought we might uh, slip up I say we because I'm a City fan unashamedly so uh, I thought Newcastle might uh, turn us over because of the exertions of the Super Cup in midweek in Greece De Bruyne is out for the best part of uh, the season through injury had an operation this week one or two injuries as well and I just thought there might be some kind of uh, hangover uh, but guess what? Uh, Guardiola marshaled the troops. Uh, fantastic moment when the three trophies, the Champions League, the FA Cup and the Premier League were paraded in front of the main stand. The players came out with the Newcastle players. And I thought it might be Pep's style just to say, oh, hang on a minute, this thing gone done. We've won three trophies, move on. Next, uh, another season, another challenge. But City, bearing in mind it was the first home game, after they'd won in Istanbul and lifted the Champions League and completed that treble, uh, they did the right thing, really, because uh, they made a big fanfare and a big fuss in front of the home fans, having won three trophies. It was a once-in-a-lifetime moment. Uh, and uh, business as usual, City seeing off Newcastle. It was spirited, uh, quite uh, abrasive, really, Newcastle, rugged, uh, picked up five bookings and uh, tried to spoil it, but I suppose Newcastle might try and do that. I thought Newcastle would be better than they were, let's put it that way. I, I, after thumping Villa last week in their opening game, I thought Newcastle had come and show something, that, but we didn't see it really. It was a bit of a classic Newcastle of old, where it was combative, it was... Uh, trying to be uh, just spoil City, a City side that they're still finding his feet. Uh, Kovacic was brilliant. Foden played really well as well in midfield, so encouraging signs there. Uh, and uh, you know, looking at the fixtures from earlier in the uh, uh, round of games, uh, Brighton again, another impressive victory, this time at Wolves. So uh, Brentford made a decent start. Your lads, Liverpool, uh, came from behind to beat Bournemouth. So, uh, And I think Liverpool, without the pressures of Europe, which Newcastle are going to face, uh, could be there or thereabouts. And I think City will be there or thereabouts. You might say, well, surely they're going to be there or thereabouts. But they're going for an unprecedented fourth league title in a row. I think it's going to be tough. Yeah, I thought the McAllister red card in the Liverpool game was a little bit harsh. I was listening to the commentator. I think they felt the same. Hopefully, when it's all said and done, we don't see a long suspension for that. Maybe he needs to get the same uh, legal representatives that perhaps Owen Farrell got when it came to the England rugby team, which is another discussion for another day, Andy. But look, I do want to touch Ange Postacoglu in charge of Tottenham Hotspur. Really, really good victory for them. 2-0 over Manchester United. 
Yeah, I watched the first half before I set off for uh, the middle of Manchester to uh, watch the City-Newcastle game. And uh, I thought United did all right, actually, against uh, Tottenham in the first half. I was a bit disappointed with uh, a new-look Tottenham side. Uh, Poster Coglu, I can't really work him out at the moment. He did well at Celtic. Is that any barometer yardstick to judge him by in the uh, English Premier League? No, it's not. Uh, but uh, he's got a smile on his face, he talks well um, and he's got a very bold vision. Manchester United, I thought there were shades of last season, I've just thought as frustrating as ever and if you're a United fan you'll think, well, nothing's changed, does it? They're still arguing over who's going to own the club, they're still working out which is the best formation, they're still looking for key players in certain positions uh, so it, it's very much got echoes of last season really City starting well and United floundering but nothing new Mm. Now, look, games to come following that Women's World Cup final, two o'clock um, UK time on a Sunday. Aston Villa, who were beaten badly last week by Newcastle, come up against Everton, sort of uh, cellar dwellers, hoping they don't end up getting relegated. They've been in the relegation fight in the last two seasons. I Key game already for these two teams. Aston Villa won't want to drop their first two games and Everton won't want to drop their first two two games. No, they won't. Uh, and before long, there's an international break coming up as well. So uh, it's, it, you don't want to go into that break thinking, oh, hang on a minute, we've made a bit of a dodgy start. And I think Villa and Everton, as you say, are both in the uh, risk of doing that. I, I just looked at Everton's team last week when they lost at home to Fulham. I thought, hang on a minute, this has just got uh, shades of last season again for Everton. So uh, I think they could struggle again. Villa surprised us all pleasantly uh, last season. And I think they'll turn it round. I think Emery's a good manager. Uh, but, uh, yeah, two teams who will be looking to get that first win on, under the belt. And uh, I'd be more optimistic if it were a Villa fan than an Everton supporter. OK, and just finally, Andy, before we do let you go, a lot of fans over here do, who do support West Ham United, uh, they take on Chelsea. I'll be honest, as a Liverpool fan, I've got zero time for Chelsea. So, fingers crossed, West Ham can win at home. <laughs> yeah, well... Guardiola made some uh, biting comments about Chelsea uh, in the press conference before the Newcastle game, saying that I'd get killed if I'd spent the money that Chelsea had spent. And it's because he's got an American owner, Chelsea, that they seem to get away with it. Whereas City uh, get accused of, uh, uh, you know, buying or spending big in the transfer market, which isn't actually true because their net uh, situation in transfers is uh, fairly profitable. But yeah... Uh, West Ham, I think, uh, having lost Declan Rice, I wouldn't be surprised to see them struggle again, big style. And uh, even though they lifted a European trophy last season, I think that they're destined for another season of uh, mediocrity at best at West Ham. And as for Chelsea, unknown package, really. Quite like the manager, I must admit, uh, Pochettino. But uh, I, I can't work out their team at the moment. I don't think anybody can. I don't think anybody at Chelsea can, to be honest with you. They've just spent an absolute fortune. And uh, how he picks that team, I do not know. But uh, it will be one of the standout games uh, of this weekend. Andy Buckley, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. Congratulations to you and your Manchester City team. And uh, look, there's n I can't stand English rugby. I hate them with an absolute passion, but I've always had a real affinity for English football. And I will be rooting for the English women's team to get up and beat Spain and hopefully uh, look at changes the mood of a nation over there. Good man. Good to speak to you, Mark. All the best. Yeah, lovely to chat to Andy Buck. He got a few thoughts on what he said regarding the women's game. Uh, we'll take a break, though, and we'll come back with more. Stephen Harris, too, uh, stalwart of Northland Rugby, is going to join us on the programme. Big win for them. Who would have picked Northland beating Tasman in the NPC yesterday? Didn't just beat them, thrashed them.
You're listening to SENZ. Uh, yeah, just during that break, just having a thought about what Andy Buckley was saying in regards to way the way this England women's football team has been received in the UK. It's not to the degree that Australia adopted the Matildas. It's never going to reach the hype of the men's game in the UK. Um, but it also highlights a lot of the virtue signalling that does go on in society. So we have a lot of people in prominent positions who come out and preach the importance of equity and equality, but don't actually practice it. The fact that 10 Downing Street is not decked out in Union Jacks like it was for the men's team at the Qatar World Cup is disgraceful. The fact that the Prime Minister, Prince William, are not going to be in Sydney is an absolute disgrace. And it shows their true colours. And it's not good enough. But I think it is also fair, I think, when we come on and say, look, the standard of the football, I think actually as a whole has actually been quite disappointing. I think there are signs of where the game can go, and it's still organically growing. But it is a much harder watch when you're so used to watching the English Premier League, when you are used to watching men's football. Now, that might not be the politically correct thing to say, but that's the honest truth. And so I'm never a big one on media trying to shove it down my throat, trying to tell me that it's something that it's not. What I will say and what I have seen with the women's game is that we are now talking about the tactics of the game. We're talking about the lineups. We're talking about the players, which is a real shift from putting a political spin on women's rights. And I think that's been a really important evolution in the game. And as I said earlier, I've thoroughly enjoyed the tournament. I've accepted it for what it is. It's presented itself beautifully, and I'm incredibly excited by that FIFA Women's World Cup final tonight, and I do hope England do get the job done. You might have some thoughts. You can text us here on double eight double three. Look, let's change things up. My next guest on the program, uh, familiar to a lot of listeners, I've uh, used Steve a lot over the years. Uh, he's passionate about club rugby. He's just passionate about his rugby but amongst all of that, he just loves Northland. Yesterday, MPC, week three of nine, Northland hosting unbeaten Tasman. Everybody's going, well, Tasman will win that one comfortably. Let's move on. Not the case. Northland beating unbeaten Tasman, 32 points to five. Wow. Stephen Harris, good afternoon. Welcome. Yeah, good afternoon, Watto. Yeah, I'll tell you what, it was, certainly was a performance that, can I say this? It was fit for purpose, wasn't it? Um, just absolutely stunning, absolutely stunning. Nobody saw this coming, to be honest, and uh, probably one of the most complete 80-minute performances I've seen from the Taniwha in a very, very long time. And it's still a, a very proud union. It's one union that I think more so than a lot of others still puts a great emphasis on the MPC. What does it mean for Northland? Oh, listen, to get a win against a team like um, like Tasman, because let's, let's face it, Tasman are a very, very, very good team. Only a week ago, they put a very good Auckland team to the sword. So this particular union, union it's fantastic. For the team itself... I think it'll give them a lot of confidence. It was a rocky start to the season. Um, of course, they lost their, their coach, Marty Veal, who had to return to the uh, USA for fam family reasons. And, of course, uh, John Leslie 
new coach only came in two weeks before the season started, so they were pretty much behind the eight ball. But for this particular union, I, I think the players themselves, it'll just give them confidence because I think they were in a little bit of a hole after those first three rounds. Probably should have got the victory against Southland this time uh, last week. And, uh, yeah, onwards and upwards. Yeah, it's a team that's got full of experience, but also some youthful exuberance. I thought Rush, at blindside, uh, what a f- big future he's got. Son of Eric Rush, of course. Ray Hanner at first five controlled things nicely. Who were some of the other standouts? Oh, listen, for me, second week in a row, Hedemeyer Murray on the wing. It seems, listen, this is a guy who who obviously is from north and originally from the Kaitaia Pangaru area and in the, in the far, north, far north. So as we know with this NPC Watto, there are gems all over the place. They just need polishing. Came down here, went to Auckland Grammar School. Sorry, I had to mention that, mate. Um, but also was a very good club centre for Grammar Tech down here in Auckland. Now, I think he's actually playing out of position, but boy, he's quality, and he's only just come back from an injury as well. Got called into the Highlanders earlier in the year and, and broke his collarbone only two weeks in during a training session, unfortunately. And listen, he's starting to string some very good, consistent performances. Also, Lemmy, uh, Remy Lemaseal, the tight head prop, who actually wasn't actually in the squad at the start of the season, but because of a whole barrage of injuries, he's coming from the development program. And boy, talk about taking your opportunities. Hmm. You mentioned Auckland Grammar, but I tell you what, it's got a strong connection to Mount Abbot Grammar, the likes of Cobb, Matic, Jack Goodyear sitting on the bench oh. for Northland. Jack Goodyear, I sort of sense. I sort of sense he's sort of still on the radar of the All Blacks for this World Cup and might just be an injury away from still getting called up. Oh, very, very much so. I feel very sorry for Jack because I think injuries have actually curtailed this midfield back. He's a very, very smart operator. And you know, as much as we all jump up and down about super rugby and seeing these outstanding tries, Jack's one of these players who does the right things at the right time. And if you look back to, through the history of all-back rugby, we've always had midfield backs, whether it be a Conrad Smith or maybe even a good analogy is like a Warwick Taylor type player. Guys who do the right thing. And, you know, usually they have somebody with a little bit of X factor around them. But I just think he, he probably should be a, a, a guy that really should have gone on and had a, a lot long all-black career. But obviously injuries are something that, that uh, you can't do much about. What will Tasman be working on? Well, I, I don't think they saw that coming. Mind you, a lot of us probably never saw that coming. What uh, I, I do wonder if they maybe had one eye on a, on a shield challenge. We know they're a quality side, and I think they will bounce back. Of, of course, uh, the Lions getting the job done yesterday, but, boy, their scrum was under, a pump, under the pump at times in that particular game. I, I think for them... They need to get their game breakers into yesterday's game. And I think, as you know, when you play with a rugby, once you actually fall behind, I think the confidence pretty much much blew out of that um, out of that Tasman side. But they're more than capable. They, they can bounce back. I think, think they've got to get their front football game going yesterday. I think they were probably owned at, owned at breakdown. And crazily enough, you never saw... Any of um, Amua, who we know is an outstanding football, or Tava Tava Nawai, those guys just never got going. I think they've got to play with a little bit more depth 
and uh, I think their forwards just need to man up a little bit more. Mm. Okay, now look, I'll just run through the other results for our listeners out there. Auckland getting up over North Harbour, 43-23. Canterbury doing a demolition over Manawatu, 68 points to 26. Wellington beating Southland, 39-17 in the game. We're just talking about Northland beating Tasman, 32 points to 5. Today, we've got Waikato taking on Taranaki, Hawks Bay take on Otago. Uh, look, Steve, just while we've got you there, I know how passionate you are. You love your club rugby. You're the guy on the ground that does all the work. Um, still absolutely tribal when it comes to Northland. You're one of the few. We've had these comments come out from the CEO of New Zealand Rugby, Mark Robinson, talking about the NPC, talking about the models not working, and somehow sort of shifting blame elsewhere. I mean, I find the comments appalling. I think New Zealand rugby's become too corporatized. I don't think they have really any understanding of the game at a grassroots level. It's all about the money. It's all about the All Blacks. I mean, how important, how vital is the NPC to rugby in this country? I mean, in terms of providing aspiration, commercial acumen for the unions and all of those other intangibles. Why is it I can see it, and I know, Steve, you can see it. Why is it New Zealand rugby can't see it? How frustrating is it? It's absolutely frustrating. You know, the thing about it, they've got a whole lot of bees on the ground, working bees, doing all the hard work for them, basically bringing a gym through by the time it gets to what's really frustrating. It's almost like NPCs become sort of some sort of high-performance competition for them where all the hard work is done by the, the voluntary brigade or the semi-professional grade by the time they get to super level, they get polished. And I, I think the likes of Mark Robinson has actually forgotten where he came from. He started with Taranaki, caught a break by playing very good NPC rugby, ended up playing for the Crusaders, then ends up catching, the, um, catching a break by getting in the All Blacks. What a, it's called a pathway. And if you block those pathways, you've got absolutely nothing. If you think by some reason that you'll bring your next All Blacks straight out of secondary school rugby or through, a, through academies, you have got another thing coming. It's just so off the mark, it's not funny. They haven't found a solution. And I can tell you there's probably some unions that are going to have to get their finances in order. It's fair to say that a lot of unions out there are basically bucking the salary cap a little bit and going over. I think they've just got to be a little bit smarter and, and promote inwardly, you know? Yeah, look, I agree uh, wholeheartedly, but it's amazing, isn't it? All the players seem to be making money. Players Association seems to be making all the executives are on big money, yet most of the unions around the country are struggling. Look, I am just running out of time. Just a quick thought, though. I've been watching North Harbour playing back at Oniwa Domain. That seems to be the model going forward. Get out of the big stadium, save some money. I think Auckland potentially could end up playing a game at the Pakaranga Rugby Club. Um, clearly the cr- crowds are not turning up, so why play in the big stadiums? Why, why pay an exorbitant cost to be there? What I think we've been, you and I have been saying this for about 10 years. You know, we saw the writing on the wall a long time ago. I think it's a fantastic idea. Get your community involved, because your community love to be involved in, in these games that are, that are played at these particular venues. I, I went across and watched the Kauri play the Hibiscus, um, a few weeks ago, and boy, just kind of reminisce walking in there thinking, man, this is not a bad sort of ground to actually watch the rugby. You can walk around to any vantage point and watch it. It's fantastic. It had a really good feel. You're able to walk out on the field and catch up with the players. I don't know what I, you know, I haven't got a, I certainly haven't got a marketing degree, but at the end of the day, this is all common sense, really.
Stephen Harris, as always, thank you for joining us on the programme. Some great thoughts, some great input. You might have your thoughts here on double eight double three Texas here on the Temper Bedpost text machine. You're listening to SENZ coming up after one o'clock. We will catch up with Hayden Shearman, um, athletics commentator, day one of the World Track and Field Championships. Tom Walsh just finishing outside of the medals in fourth. We'll sort of uh, gain some understanding of who this New Zealand track and field team is what they're participating in and what maybe our expectations should be on our athletes. Uh, yesterday too on the programme we caught up with Kelson Butler who is an old boy of Sacred Heart College here in Auckland but he is a diehard old boy and they are one of only two schools in Auckland that have never been relegated from the Auckland 1A. The other school being my old Bob Mount Albert Grammar but they've had to wait 58 years to win the Auckland 1A Championship. Yesterday they took on St Kennigan's and they finally got the job done. They are Auckland Secondary School champion. And we want to talk to Kelson. It's not because I'm trying to favour the Auckland First 15 comp or anything like that. It's just been a 58-year wait. And it's a school with a rich history. Sean Fitzpatrick, Craig Innes, um, the Crowley boys. There's been a lot of uh, great rugby players that have come out of the school. But I'd imagine Kelson's typical of a lot of people out there that have still a strong affiliation with their school follow it closely, celebrate the highs, um, have to sometimes deal with the disappointment when their school teams, whether it be water polo, whether it be football or whatever, uh, don't quite maybe deliver. And so I thought just after 58 years, uh, we'll get Kelson on. I know he's very nervous yesterday. He's been waiting a long time for this result, but well done to them. So we'll do that too, around about 1.30. Look, I just want to touch again on the MPC. It is such a vital cog. It is such a vital part of New Zealand rugby. Uh, can the unions afford it? Well, they've got no choice. Is it a competition that needs to be sort of semi-professional, more amateur than professional? Perhaps. Do they need to be playing in the big stadiums? No, they don't. In fact, I think taking it to boutique grounds might get the public re-engaged. But I think New Zealand rugby need to come up with a strategy to try and further enhance this comp. What New Zealand rugby don't seem to get is the same mistakes they've made with the NPC they're now doing with Super Rugby. You would have heard me say this a lot on this programme. But under Steve Chu, and now under Mark Robertson, New Zealand rugby has shifted us from being rugby fans to all-black fans. And everything is about the All Blacks. And it's a house of cards. Yes, you've got to have top down, but you've got to have bottom up. The question is, where does all the money go that the All Blacks do generate? It just seems to go back into administration who just continue to feed the All Black machine. Players seem to be making a lot of money. Players Association seem to be dictating a lot of the terms. We've got a New Zealand rugby union that are in this building down here, the Saatchi and Saatchi building in Parnell, which I'd imagine they're paying exorbitant rent for. Why don't they just have a facility somewhere in a Mount Roskill where they'd probably save themselves two, dollars $300,000 a year in rent two or $300,000 a year that you can invest in clubs around the country on basic infrastructure, floodlights. It's really... Unbelievable what is going on, and no one in the media seems to challenge them. You might want to have some thoughts on that. You can text us here on the Temper Bedpost text machine on double eight double three. Don't forget, coming up after one o'clock, we talk some athletics, we talk some schoolboy rugby.
never gets stale. You can never have enough Guns N' Roses. It takes me right back to my time in Japan in 1988, 1989. I remember seeing them at the big top, the original lineup. And boy, how big are they now? Still one of the biggest bands in the world. You are listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you through to two o'clock as we do countdown to live coverage tonight of the FIFA Football Women's World Cup final played between Spain and England set to kick off at 10 o'clock. Got a lot of time for the Spanish, but I do have an affiliation for English football. I do hope the Lionesses can get the job done. The other big sporting event taking place is in Budapest in Hungary. It is the World Track and Field Championships, and New Zealand has a strong contingent of athletes across an eclectic mix of track and field events. Hayden Shearman, the voice of athletics in this country, joins us on the programme to preview this new, well, to preview, well, day one has got underway, but to preview the World Athletic Championships and to talk about this New Zealand athletics team, 24 athletes named. Hayden, good afternoon, welcome. Yeah, good afternoon, Mark. It's good to uh, good to be on the show with you this afternoon and talk some athletics. We're in we're in the heat of it, so this is uh, really the big one uh, over the next ten days. Kicked off last night and um, really got off to a, an electric start already. So, be excited to break down break down this team. Okay, well, the big news, I guess, it's come through, and maybe disappointing news because we're just so used. To Tom Walsh winning medals at major events, but finishes fourth in the men's shot put. Yeah, heartbreak for for uh, for Big Tom. Um, he was looking good too. Came out of the the blocks pretty pretty good in those first few rounds. And Jacko Gill was actually up in second, just nipped ahead of of Tom uh, for I think it was, that was in round two or round three. Uh, but then. The Brazilian, um, uh, sorry, the Italian Fabri had a uh, really impressive throw of 22-34, so that got him up into second. Joe Kovacs, he's just, he seems to win a medal at these events. He can book a a slot for him. Uh, He got the bronze, and then Ryan Krauser just looked, you know, he's in, proved that he's in another league. He had some health issues, but he's still through a championship record of 23-51. So the the Kiwi boys, we're just off the pace, but, you know, right there in the mix. Um, so Tom was seven centimetres off that bronze medal, and then there's only another, well, what is it, about another 29 centimetres back to uh, Jacko in, uh, in sixth place. So so good result uh, for, for Jacko, but definitely Tom will be ruining those seven centimetres that, that got left to Kovacs. Hayden, try and just break it down a little bit in shot put. I think sometimes in athletics it's a lot easier to break down why maybe an athlete doesn't perform or hit their times. But in shot put, it's speed. It's There's a technical component to it. I've spoken to Tom previously. He says, yes, there are, you know, they periodise. They are looking to try and peak, but he's well below his season's best of 22.58. So what didn't quite go right for him mechanically? Uh, why was he below his best, perhaps? Yeah, I haven't heard any interviews with him since 
since the result this morning, um, so no doubt they'll come out in time today. Um, but, you, you know, these field events especially, you need everything to click. And, and when you're talking about the, the rotational method going across the shot put circle, there's multiple phases. And if one of those phases just doesn't quite link together, uh, then, you know, you won't get that purchase on the shot. So you saw with Ryan Krauser when he took the win, his hands were, were in the air with his final throw before it had even hit the ground. He knew immediately how far that thing was going, um, and that's the, usually the feel that these throwers will have. They'll know as soon as it leaves the hand whether it's a good throw or not. Um, and often it comes down to just things clicking on the day. Um, it, it, was a, it was a solid outing for, for Tom, uh, don't get me wrong, with a 22.05, but like you say, that's more than half a metre off his best, which is 22.90. Um, and, yeah, quite, quite a few centimetres off his season best this, this year. Um, encouraging signs for, for Jacko as well, but, yeah, both of them will be, be feeling like they probably put out a B-plus when, when on that stage you really need mm. to be hitting an A or an A-plus. Yeah, I always say it about track and field too, you know, sometimes athletes or kayakers, they get one chance at a world championships once every two years, sometimes once a year, where, you know, golfers, well, they get four opportunities a year. Tennis players often get every week uh, to right the wrongs, and that's what makes the sport so incredibly tough, trying to get it right on one given day once every two years. Um, and I think sometimes that is lost on people. We should just say Jack O'Gill finishing sixth in that, which, you know, 20 years ago we would have taken and we would have probably had a ticker tape parade for him. Uh, look, um, <laughs> let's uh, just look at some of the athletes, other athletes that were in action overnight. Sam Tanner, he progressed safely to Monday semifinals with 1,500 metres, came home fourth. Pretty slow heat, but yeah, that's that all it. you have to do in the 1,500 metres. Absolutely. There was a tactical one. It was a bit of a hairy one to watch, sort of almost reminiscent of Nick Willis' tactics, just being patient, sitting back in the pack, and he had a lot of traffic to get through. Uh, so the the big rule change with the middle distance events is that there's no... Uh, all, all of the qualifiers are auto-qualifiers, so there's no, based on time, the little cue, as, as we say, uh, so you had to make that that top six, and he he got himself into fourth pretty pretty comfy, but he was following Timothy Chariot, Chariot who's the 2019 champion, um, who you'd think would be a good man to follow and just follow him to the finish line, but Chariot really slowed up in that last hundred metres. Um, which put a bit of pressure on the guys behind him. So, uh, yeah, Sam Tanner had to take the inside line, and luckily enough, he's small enough to squeeze through and booked himself in the semis, and he'll be looking to make that final and, and um, certainly be a contender uh, in the final in a few days' time. Yeah, I always say this. I think the major meets, arguably the hardest event at the Olympics or World Track and Field Champs, are often the semi-finals of the eight and fifteen hundred more so than the heats because they are just so tactical as well. But also, what makes the World Champs interesting versus, say, Golden League or Diamond League meets is that you do eh, you've got heats, you've got semi-finals, and you've got finals. So you're racing three pretty tough races in the space of three or four days unlike these one-off meets where it's just a straight final, then you get a week off or a couple of weeks off to sort of recover. So I'd imagine that base work and that ability to recover becomes even more important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's a quick turnaround for the, the semi-final, uh, which I believe is on tomorrow. I'll need to double-check the 
to the program. Oh, yeah, there we go. So it's 3, 3.35 a.m. tomorrow morning. Uh, so that's a quick turnaround for, for the 1,500-metre boys. And then they've got a few days to to the final. But like you say, that, that winter base work uh, really comes into it now uh, whether you've got that endurance and the ability to recover uh, between the rounds, but which is a good thing for Sam. Uh, he had a slow, the slowest heat of all, all the four heats, and that means that you've got to do a lightning fast 400, but you, you do save the legs over the first stages of the race. Hayden Sherman, my guest on the programme. We are talking athletics, day one of the World Track and Field Championships, and just talking a little bit about the New Zealand track and field team taking part at these World Championships. Not such good news for Kiwi sprinter Tian Walpton. He bowed out of the men's 100 metres, disappointing fashion by his own high standards, running 10.26, well off his PB of 10.14. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it seems like a funny race for Tian. He had a great start, uh, got away uh, through that sort of acceleration phase and then just was just lacking a bit of that, that top end sort of around the middle stages of the race. Uh, so finished sixth in his heat, uh, 10.26, uh, the, the slowest little Q uh, non-automatic qualifier was 10.17. So uh, yeah, he'll be disappointed, but first time on the on the big stage at the World Champs uh, for Tian, so he'll definitely take that experience with him. He was out running in lane nine as well, which always makes it a bit tricky with no one to kind of key off uh, on your right side. But uh, yeah, I'm sure he'll be stronger for the experience. Geordie Beamish progressed to the final of the 3,000 metre steeplechase, a relatively new event for him, but boy, I tell you what, he's taking every opportunity presented. Yeah, we we really need to watch the space with Geordie. I think he's a, a real talent and I love the move to the the steeples, he was uh, you know a five thousand meter middle distance runner, but he he's really seen an opportunity here to contend. You know, in the three thousand steeples, you got the two guys, Germer and Al Bakali, who are the, the easily the favourites for for the the title and the silver, but really that bronze is, is up for grabs. And so watch this space with, with Geordie Beamish. He looked really good in the heat. Uh, held his own um, in a reasonably tactical race and ended up coming pretty close to the national record and just jogging it in. So uh, he will definitely be one to watch uh, in the as the championship progresses. OK, just running through some of the other names in this New Zealand team, of course Zoe Hobbs still got the 100 metres, she's got to compete. I think probably the story for me is Eliza McCartney now jumping back at sort of 4 metres 80, if she can sort of hit 482, very much could end up winning a medal. We've got Olivia McTaggart there as well, and we've got Maddie Weshey, of course, in the women's shot put. Yeah, it's it's a really, uh, I, I love the makeup of our, of our team. So we've got 19 athletes over there. Uh, who met the the final uh, qualifying standards, um, and you know good representation across the sprints, throws, jumps, um, and a bit of distance there as well. Uh, so, you know Zoe Hobbs has been the queen of athletics this probably the last eighteen months, and has really raised the pro- profile of women's sprinting and bringing her team along with her with, with the other James Mortimer coached. Athletes like Georgia Hulls and Rosie Elliott and Portia Bing all lining up in the in, the, in their various sprint uh, events as well. So Zoe's leading that that pack of girls, and you know, women's sprinting is just at a really having a golden era at the moment. So you know, is she a medal hope? I I, uh, I would 
wouldn't put any money money on it, but I would say that top eight, if she could make the final, would be a, a really impressive uh, result. Um, certainly, uh, would you'd like to think she'd make the semi-finals? Um, but yeah, all eyes on on Zoe, and then as you say, Eliza McCartney finally coming back from her injuries and looking in really good form, hitting a, a four eight five on the on the pole vault just a couple of weeks ago, which is only nine centimeters off her best. And that gets her ranked up in the top three in the world. So she's going to be a contender in in the medals. And Madison, where she she's we've got no idea what sort of fitness she's in. She isn't one of those competitors that does a whole lot of competition through through the year. She'll often just turn up to these majors pretty fresh. That's the way she likes to roll. Um, and she got seventh last year with a with a big PB of 19.50. So she uh, could well push on from there and head up into those those 19. So she'll be a contender as well uh, for those women's medals. Uh, Hamish Kerr in the high jump. Now he's won some Diamond League meets, Commonwealth Games champion. Um, but, you know, 224, 228. I, that's not going to cut it at these world championships. I'd imagine that this is still going to be win somewhere around 238, 236 minimum. Um, how much confidence should we have in him? Is, is he jumping well enough to potentially medal here? We know that he's a championship jumper. He's won a bronze medal at the World Indoors, Commonwealth Games gold medal, as mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, this is a big unknown. I think Bashim uh, from Qatar, he, he's still the, the favourite, but the, the high jump is one of those events, that, much like the pole vault, really, where there's, there's so many factors on, on the night, whether it's the weather, whether it's just how you're feeling, just getting that run up uh, right that can uh, really just throw a spanner in the works. So much like the steeplechase for uh, for Geordie Beamish, there, you know, there's a lot of guys uh, who'd be hunting for, for those medals, probably about 10 of them. Um, and, you know, a lot of those guys won't make the, the top 12 either. So make it out of that, those first rounds. So uh, if it's raining, uh, Hamish has proved this year that he is the man to beat when it, when it, the weather's not good. He won the Diamond League up in Oslo, I think it was, when it was uh, raining and pretty chilly. So the weather could be a factor for, for Hamish. Uh, but if he can get close to his national record of 234 or beat it, you've got to think he's within within Kui of, of nabbing one of those medals. And look, who knows? It's high jump. Uh, anything can happen. So... Uh, be sure to tune into that one because there there will definitely be some drama uh, in the high jump. Hayden, before we let you go, we've got a representative in the men's 800 metres in James Preston. A lot of people won't be familiar with the name. Give us a little bit of a background on James, uh, where he's come from, the progression, the path he's taken. Yeah, so James Preston, he's joining Brad Mathis, who's also booked uh, his place in in the 800. So two black singlets running in the 800, which is really, really cool to see. Uh, But James Preston sort of been quietly going about his work in in Wellington, uh, had a really good junior career. I believe he's the uh, New Zealand junior 800 metre uh, record holder. Um, And we've sort of been waiting on him to to arrive on the uh, on the sort of international stage along with brad mathis really uh, so they're both uh, sub 146 runners um which is still a tick over a second off peter snell's amazing record from the 60s um but yeah james is is re- run really well last year this year he's just uh 
he's been a bit, just missing a beat in his social media. He's sort of been saying, not sure what's going on, just, uh, yeah, not, not quite firing on all cylinders. So he's sort of half a second off where he was uh, this time last year. But the 800, much like uh, the, the vertical jumps, it's one of those tactical races where anything can happen. And uh, if either James or Brad could, could pull out a PB or get close to Snell's record, uh, we could definitely see them advance through the round. So, yeah, let's, let's wait and see how those boys get on. Hayden, as always, privilege and a pleasure, my good man. Thank you. Thank you. Hayden Shearmer then talking all athletics now. I should correct it. It's a 19-strong team, initially 24, but it's 19-strong team. I'll just run through those athletes that are taking part. Zoe Hobbs in the 100, Georgia Hulls on the 200. Nice to see some athletes in those sort of, not middle distance, but longer track events or longer sprint events. Rosie Elliott in the 400 metres. We've got Portia Bing in the 400-metre hurdles. Eliza McCartney, Olivia McTaggart and Imogen Iris in the women's pole vault. Maddie Weshey in the shot uh, in the shot put, Lauren Bruce in the hammer, Tori Peters in the javelin, Tian Welpton out of the hundred but competed, James Preston, Brad Mathis in the eight hundred, Sam Tanner in the fifteen hundred metres, Geordie Beamish in the three thousand steeplechase, high jump representation from Hamish Kerr, Jack O'Gill, Tom Walsh in the shot put, and Connor Bell representing New Zealand in the discus. It's great to see, isn't it, that we're no longer just a middle distance nation; that we are now well and truly across the field events. And really good to see the emergence of our women's athletes almost surpassing what our men are doing. So it runs for 10 days. I'd imagine that there will be plenty of coverage across SEN over the next seven or eight days on the World Track and Field Championships. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking schoolboy rugby. You're listening to SENZ. Well, yesterday on the programme, we got Kelson Butler on. Now, Kelson's probably typical of a lot of uh, people around the country who still have a strong affiliation with their high school and are still passionate about their school because of those informative years. And we got Kelson on yesterday because he loves his alma mater, Sacred Heart. And Sacred Heart were once again in another Auckland 1A rugby final. The Monkeys been on their back for 58 years. They haven't won the 1A Championship or hadn't won the 1A Championship for 58 years. And so we had them on the programme to preview that, what it would mean if they could get the job done. Well, the good news is they did get the job done. They beat the might of St. Kennigan and they have broken the hoodoo. This team becomes part of Sacred Heart folklore. Kelson Butler, good afternoon. Welcome. G'day, Mark. G'day, g'day. Yeah, it's uh, what a special day yesterday was. Wow. It, uh, you said uh, you said the monkey after 58 years. We were talking about it last night. It's taken on gorilla, gorilla-like proportions. So uh, yeah, nice to nice to have that one done. The boys, uh, the boys were superb. Yeah, it's a it's a remarkable school. It's like a lot of the great schools here. Um, right around the country. As I said yesterday, it's one of only two schools in Auckland that have never been out of the 1A manner, but Grammar being the other. Um, you came up against a St Kennigan team that had gone all season unbeaten. What was the difference yesterday? Um, I, I actually think, Mark, uh, you know, we, we played St Kent's over at St Kent's during the... Um, you know, the the round robin they they were uh you know they they beat us by about 10 or 12 points that day and so all of a sudden we'd go off to a really good start to the season and then St Kent's uh you know beat us and sat us back down and 
uh, on, on, on our bums and said uh, so our boys I think it was like well maybe we've got to work a bit harder and I think uh, you know that having that that was our only loss but having that only loss I think sharpened the boys up for yesterday there was no complacency you know I'm just speaking from an old boy not a coach or anything but from the outside it was like uh, you know the boys were determined and and um, um, they they embraced you know, they embraced that 58 years. That was part of uh, their whole season. Written in their changing sheds at, uh, back at Sacred Heart was um, embrace the challenge. The big words, 1965, in their face. This time they went into, their, into the championship games. And, uh, you know, uh, they knew there was, a, there was a lot of history. And, and um, you know, all credit to... Uh, Mark Sell and the coach and, and uh, Francis Dowers and Nick Guys and people like that that out at the school that um, you know the boys were were in a good headspace going into the game too so yeah um, really, really special day. Usually it's a game that's often played at Eden Park as a curtain raiser but this game was played at Wider Matter uh, yesterday 2.45 kickoff yeah. final score 39-29 it sounds like a very open game of running rugby thoroughly entertaining by all accounts yeah, really good game. We got we got a bit lucky with the weather. It was uh, it was yeah heavy showers leading up to it, and and pretty much at two forty five, um, the rain the rain stopped. There was still a bit of wind. Um, Sacred had first use of the wind in the in the first half, and got out to uh, 24, 24-10 at halftime, and um, and then scored. Immediately after halftime, so got out to 31, uh, 31 10, and uh, but you know with you know, St Kettigans, the, the, they uh, they don't um, lie down. They came back, scored a couple of tries, um, and then it uh, yeah. But we, we we had that little cushion, got a penalty later on, and and uh, ten points in the end. But it was um, as we spoke about yesterday, Mark, the quality of the rugby that these young men play is outstanding you know like uh at um you know uh just you know forwards backs um quality of uh quality of the kicking game you know line outs it's just it's just a great great advertisement you know for the game first of thing rugby is rugby at its purest and you had then you had the passion of the you know the schools all the <coughs> the the students current students and all the old boys and um it's just a you know just a really a, a good day and a real celebration of rugby. You know like what what rugby should be, and um, so yeah, great day. How many turned up? How many from each school? Did we have what six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand? Day well, chatting to chatting to Auckland Rugby, um, who did a did a good job in running it at the day. They there was five five thousand six hundred, and I would say that Sacred Heart had over four thousand. That's that's uh, that's how many um, travelled out from um, from Sacred Heart. Boys flew up from uh, you know, some of these young old boys were flying up from where they are at Varsity or where they're living now. We had uh, you know, farmers driving up from Taranaki. We had uh, all sorts. So yeah, we would have had we would have had over four thousand Sacred Heart um, contingent there uh, yesterday. Yeah, Kelson, look, um, I mean, it's always, um, I'm sometimes a little hesitant to do it, but some of the standout players for Sacred Heart, who are maybe some of those names perhaps we could keep an eye on in the future? Uh, the 
captain uh, Tamiano Alu, the, um, our big uh, our big prop. He, um, you know, cliche, but he was immense yesterday. Led from the front. Uh, so did uh, our other prop, Tonga Helu. Um, he scored a couple of tries. Uh, Josh Higbland, uh, the lock. Yeah, you know, you are hesitant to name because I, I actually think, you know, one right through 23 all played superbly. But, uh, um, and I think Rico Simpson, who is the uh, first five, absolute standout first five all season, um, he was, uh, he, he was, you know, quality, ran the game as any good first five does. We spoke, um, had a little chat to him afterwards, uh, Mark, you like this, and he, he said that um, when he arrived at Sacred Heart in year seven, um, sat down in class and the, and the teachers got them to write, you know, what their goals were for when they were at uh, Sacred Heart. And he wrote down, he said, I've still got my exercise book. I wrote down that I wanted to win the 1A competition. And when the yes, those year seven boys who are now, who were in the first 15 yesterday, they were all the little guys that um, watched uh, the last time we were in the final and St Kent's beat us at Eden Park. So they've been waiting seven years for, uh, for their go. So um, he did well. And, and he also said, um, you know, as we know, the, you know, the Marist brothers play a big part in Sacred Heart and, and uh, Brother Jared's not doing very well at the moment. And a lot of your listeners will, will know Brother Jared. He's, he's been coached first 15 rugby and grade rugby for a long time. And Rico said, oh, no, the boys... Um, we all ran out. We all had Brother Jared's name on our um, on our wrist tape when we went uh, when we went out yesterday. So we're all playing for him too. So so uh, yeah, it's uh, they they did did a great um, did a great job. Community enjoyed it, and then we all went back to all went back to Sacred Heart for a um, for an after match, um, a party 58 years in the making, and uh, a lot of dancing to some of our Sacred Heart musos. The dudes and Dave Dobbin and uh, Split Ends uh, music was playing, and um, my hammies are a bit tight this morning. Kelson <laughs> uh, Butler, my guest on the program, an old boy of Sacred Heart College, 58 years in the waiting to win the Auckland 1A Championships, which they did yesterday against St Kennigan's by 39 points to 29. Look, the season's not over now. You now move on. You've got to play the champions of North Harbour. You then have to go potentially into the top four and have a crack at the New Zealand Secondary Schools title. Yeah, mate, it was an interesting one. We've, we've actually uh, we've actually been told we've we've got to go up to Whangarei first. We've got to we've um, it's part of uh, I'm, I'm not sure, so I'm, I don't want to uh, forgive the pun, speak out of school. But we've, we we've got to travel to Whangarei on Wednesday. It's part of uh, because it's a blues representation thing. And then if we uh, beat Whangarei boys, then we come back and play Westlake next. Uh, next Saturday, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just not a hundred on it. Maybe one of your listeners could explain. That no, that look, uh, that, that played in the North Harbour. Yeah, that does make sense. So um, I know that historically, when Mount Albert have gone through, they've had to play the Northland champions. But again, as Whangare, as yeah. Whangarei boys is now part of North Harbour yeah, again. I'm not quite sure how that works yeah, out. But look, yeah. anyway, yeah, um, yeah, and, and look, good good luck with that, Kelson. So look, uh, now 58 yeah. years, uh, you'd imagine the floodgates open. You won the New Zealand Men's Water Polo yeah. Championship this year. Uh, the legacy now the legacy what's the legacy of this team um well we had some of the the, the boys from 1965 the last team that were there uh, that won the championship they were at, uh, at the after at the game and at the aftermatch last night and um you know it's it's like one of those things now the monkey's off the back you hope uh you know you hope it's not a, a, another 58 years because we we're talking about that that'd be 2081 and i don't think a lot of us would be around <laughs> to see it if we're waiting that long again so 
I think I think uh, these young guys, uh, as as I mentioned earlier, they they were inspired by the team that they saw when they were in year seven, and I think there'll be a lot of year seven, year eight, year nine boys who will be going. That's what we want to do now. Um, our second 15 is a young team. They're in the final next week against um, De La Salle. Uh, the one R boys are in the final next week as well, so there's there's a there's a good group of boys coming through, and, and as I say, they'll all be inspired by this team, and this this team will be uh, yeah held up in uh, years to come as uh, as as one of our best ones. Kelson Butler, go and get some sleep. Um, hopefully, the <laughs> adrenaline fatigue doesn't hit you in the days coming. But congratulations, and all the very best against uh, Whangarei boys on Wednesday, and hopefully Westlake boys next week. Good stuff. Always great to chat, Mark. Love the passion. There you go, Kelson Butler there. I just thought it's a really nice piece, uh, as I said. Uh, look, and more than happy to cover other schools around the country. I've got no affiliation with Sacred Heart. I just love the story. It was 58 years. Man, Albert Grammar, I'm through and through. I think we've won, what, 23, 24 Auckland 1A championships. Auckland Grammar have only won more. But huge respect for Sacred Heart. Huge respect for schoolboy rugby right around the country. Really pleased it's no longer on television. Um... And yeah, it's still just such a vital part of New Zealand rugby. And it is pure. Um, and it's something that we do need to protect, uh, and just like we need to protect the NPC. Uh, Taniella Tupo, uh, recent old boy of Sacred Heart. Um, Hoskins Atutu, another one. They've had Sean Fitzpatrick. They've had the likes of Craig Innes. A lot of All Blacks over the years, a lot of international representatives as well. But Kelson, group of old boys, incredibly passionate about their old school. And, um, yeah, hopefully people out there can sort of relate to Kelson's relief and passion that he has for his school. You're listening to SENZ, Mark Watson with you, with you through to 2 o'clock. Yeah, interesting chat there with Kelson Butler. We've also just had a chat, the World Athletic Championships with Hayden Shearman. Uh, if you have just joined the programme, after 12, we caught up with Andy Buckley out of the UK, uh, BBC football commentator. Uh, he'd just actually been to Manchester City, uh, Newcastle game, but we got him on to sort of have a chat about uh, the UK ramping up for this Women's World Cup final. And he said, look, it's not quite the hype that you get around the men's game, but it is still important. Just a reminder, we'll have live coverage of that here on SENZ uh, from 10 o'clock tonight. Thoroughly looking forward to it. Good luck to both teams. Good luck to Spain. Good luck to England. Uh, Look, the other big story, and I guess it's got a bit of a down-under flavour, is that Tottenham Hotspur have got up and beaten Manchester United by two goals to nil. Now, Ange Postacoglu, well-known to A-League fans, well-known to our audience in Australia, um, took his chances in the UK with Celtic and then was promoted into the job of Tottenham Hotspur coach. They beat Manchester United 2-0. Huge win for him. Huge win for Spurs. So we thought we'd bring you some of the press conference with Ange Postacoglu because I'd imagine it would be a pretty emotional day for him, his first win in charge of Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, congratulations, Ange. What did you performance and the atmosphere was um, The atmosphere was, was incredible. Um, our supporters were, were outstanding today. Just you know, the energy they, they created... Um, you know, in the stadium right from the first whistle was just uh, brilliant. And to be honest, I thought it helped us. So in the first half, I thought we we just looked a bit nervous and a bit edgy um, for sort of half an hour or so and probably fortunate to still be in the game. We just, 
you know, giving the ball away cheaply and allowing them to sort of, you know, come at us. <clears throat> but at the same time, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's not surprising. We had, you know, a couple of 20-year-olds out there, 22-year-old, a couple of 23-year-olds. It's, it's a really young team we're putting out there. So, but I just thought there was really <clears throat> encouraging signs towards the end of the first half and the last sort of five, ten minutes. And, you know, we got them in half-time and just sort of <clears throat> settled them down a little bit. And... Um, I thought the boys were, were brilliant. Um, they came out, great energy, took the game to, to me and you and scored a good goal and then, you know, didn't stop from there, you know. Had to defend, but we did that well. Vic pulled off a couple of good saves, so, you know, encouraging signs there. You mentioned the age of obviously, a couple of the one of the young players. I mean, how impressive is that in this atmosphere and that the pressure to, to put him in a form Yeah, brilliant. And, um, you know, he's, he's been great from the moment I arrived, you know. He's, he's got a great energy about him and... Um, but he's got quality there too, you know. He's, he's he's one of these midfielders that you know really causes opposition's problems because whether it's him running with the ball or running without the ball, he runs forward, he runs aggressively, he disrupts oppositions, and yeah, he's just got a great temperament for a young guy. Um, so yeah, really pleased for him. You saw yesterday about wanting not only to win the game but do this with the performance. How how much do you think you did to set a plan on that? I thought, like I said, I thought there were encouraging signs there. You know, I don't think it was a you know victory on the back of you know a backs to the wall you know desperate performance. I thought you know there was elements of it, particularly in the second half, where we showed the kind of team we want to be, and that's what you're looking for. And uh, you know, I'm not silly enough to think that. You know, two weeks into a season, and you know, six or six or so weeks into my tenure, that we're going to be putting in complete performances. But what you want to see is, you know, some some sprouts of growth in terms of the team we want to be. And I, I definitely saw that, and 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 real resilience too. We had to show it in the first game, and you know, with, with things that sort of went against us. And and today, you know, we. Again, you know, we could have gone into our shells in the second half, but if anything, we, we got more brave and more courageous in our football and we got the rewards. Yeah, how much is that about fitness? How much is that about mentality? The fact that both games, the like Spurs have been much better side of the second half? Well, it's just sometimes the nature of the games, the way they flow, um, different games. I just thought today, like I said, I thought, you know, we, we, we were just edgy in the first half. You know, we, we weren't doing simple things and, you know, human nature, you know, the boys are probably trying really hard to impress and probably overcomplicating the game and once they simplified the game and, and you know, there were some obvious areas there we could hurt them, then they got to grips with that and, and sort of, um, you know, committed to it in the second half. When you made those decisions on team, they're obviously big decisions you'd like to be praised on bench and young players. It's like, is it just a feeling you've got or is that is that just completely the way you want to go? I'd like to think I know what I'm doing, mate. So, um, but yeah, look, some of it's look, especially in the early stage. I, I think part of you know what I need to do at the moment is kind of just explore, you know, the squad and the individuals within it. You know, I don't, it'd be just silly of me at this point to sort of stick with it with some sort of formula in terms of team lineup, because unless I expose some of these guys to 
this level trying to play our football I won't find out about them so you know it could have been very easy not to make any changes because you know the guys who dropped out you know Emerson and Skippy didn't do anything wrong last week you know they're putting great efforts but you know I wanted to see Papi I wanted to see Pedro you know and there's others I want to see and, and we'll use this without you know disrupting the cohesion of the team um but this early bid, it's an opportunity for me to see guys out there and give them a taste of it as well, because I think that then, you know, feeds into, you know, their development that, you know, if they're out there and they can see they can do it, um, you know, that gives us more personnel to work with moving forward. Ian? Alan, I know it's a team game, but how did you feel personally about getting your first Premier League win under your belt and giving the crowd seeing your name? Yeah, it's nice. Um, you know, I've... I, I kind of, yeah, you you, you you separate yourself from from that stuff because what's more important to me right now is that if we, you know, if we're going to continue to sort of go down this road, is that you know, I said before the game that we really need an energy, particularly here at home, and it would have been a shame today that you know, because you, you could tell the crowd were up for it if we if we were flat in our performance and, and not so much, obviously you want to win and that, that sort of gives everyone the joy they need, but I thought the, the manner in which we played, um, it's a great starting point. So when the final whistle goes, you kind of, you know, from my perspective, that's fantastic fertile ground for me to keep going, you know, rather than sort of, like I said, if, if we had a flat performance today, it would have been hard you know, we would have had to work hard, but at the same time, now that kind of, you know, leaves a, a fairly decent benchmark that we've got to match now because that's the expectation that we go out there and because we did it against a very good team today, we do that on a weekly basis. The success here, the wider Australian game, how the Australian game is, is seen worldwide, do you think, given the, the, the high profile nature of this job? Um, I battle with that, mate. I really don't know. I really don't know whether we'll ever crack Australia. I hope so. I think the Women's World Cup was a green tournament. Um, I'm not watching any more of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, like, I, obviously, the Premier League's always been the most watched league in Australia anyway, so now they have a vested interest. So so it's great. But, you know, I, how much of an impact that has, I'm, I'm not really sure. But, um, yeah, from my perspective, it's not just for me, I guess, for other guys with... I don't know if there are too many with similar backgrounds to mine, but, you know, well, I've worked 26 years in the game. Uh, I, it's not that I feel I've earned this opportunity, it's just that I don't see any reason why I shouldn't be given this opportunity. Ange Postacoglu there uh, talking about that victory over Manchester United, his just second goal, second game in charge of Tottenham Hotspur. He's had a remarkable managerial career, going right back to South Melbourne from 96 to 2000. He's managed the Australian under-17, Australia under-20s. Brisbane Raw, the Melbourne Victory, of course, was National Coach of Australia from 2013 to 2017. Spent some time in Japan, uh, Celtic, and now Spurs, so very much taken the pathway. Look, I agree with him. I don't think that football will ever really, really crack uh, the mainstream media at a, at a national level. I mean, even the A-League, it's got a following, but it's never going to be like rugby league or Australian rules football. The women probably have a better chance of doing that to a women's audience. 
Uh, but look, well done to him. I think it's a great story. This is a guy who has gone through the highs and lows at times. And I think it's a message to all of us that you do have to learn how to lose to learn how to win. You've got to believe in yourself. You've still got to take your opportunities. Uh, Realise that, hey, someone might not like you. That's not to say that someone in the future might have a completely contrasting view of how you are perceived or the skill set that you do bring. Uh, I hope that Spurs invest in this guy, give him some time, and that it's just not, well, we want success automatically. It does take time. So well done to Ange Postacoglu, and well done to Tottenham Hotspur, certainly doing me a favour. I can't stand Manchester United being a Liverpool fan, beating United by two goals to nil. We will take our final break, and then we'll come back. We'll wrap up. Just remember, supercars to come after two o'clock here on SENZ. You're listening to SENZ Supercast coming up shortly after 2 o'clock. Just a reminder too that the Bunnings Rugby Run is back next Sunday. Myself, Steve Devine, will be doing this right through the Rugby World Cup. We're actually going to be doing a live outside broadcast from Bunnings in Silverdale, just north of Auckland as well. So if you are around in the region, we'd love you to come down and, hey, more than happy to sit down, have a chat. Love to get people's just the average fan on the streets thoughts on the state of the NPC, what chance you do give the All Blacks. Uh, at this year's Rugby World Cup. Uh, someone just texting and wanting to just me run through the round NRL uh, results. Um, we did this yesterday. Clearly there were games overnight. So let's just take you back to round 25. And I'll just bring it up, just make sure I've got them all here. So, yep. So we had the Cowboys going down to the Sharks, 32 points to 12. And then we had the Seagulls uh, beating, getting beaten by the Warriors, 29-22. The Roosters beating the Eels 34 points to 12. Keep an eye on the Roosters. They might be that team with the momentum heading into the playoffs. West Tigers got up over the Dolphins 24-23. Panthers doing a demolition on the Titans 40 points to 14. And then the Storm getting up over the Dragons 38 points to 28. Storm, another team, another team that do what the Storm do. And then two games still left. We've got the Knights taking on the Rabbitohs and we've got the Raiders hosting the Doggies. So that is set to go at five past six today. And the Rabbitohs Knights is set to go at five minutes after four. Just a reminder again, tonight, 10 o'clock, the biggest women's sporting event in the world outside of the Olympic Games, the women's FIFA World Cup final is set to go. Live coverage here on SENZ. It is Spain. Up against England, we will have a new winner. 70-odd thousand people will be in attendance. Broadcast live across Europe. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, Sunday morning. Should be an absolute cracker. It's been a wonderful tournament credit to both the people of Australia and New Zealand for turning up in abundance, supporting these games. Well done to Dave Beach and the organisers of this tournament. I listen to the BBC World Service a lot at night and it's amazing just how much coverage this is getting and just that connection with New Zealand and Australia. That is us. Special thanks to Robbie. It's been a privilege and a pleasure having your company. We look forward to doing it all again next Sunday.